One problem facing people at many levels of business is how to make time for a work life and a personal life. Do you find that one seems to keep getting in the way of the other? This is the Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris. Even if you're not involved in the business world, you'll have a lot to gain by tuning in to today's show. Now, here is your host, Rick Morris. And welcome to another edition of the Work-Life Balance on this Friday afternoon. I apologize for the different sound as I'm uh, attending a business mastermind uh, in, in uh, an undisclosed location, but uh, uh, many of you know I'm a, a member of the John Maxwell team and in we normally have these huge events that we run uh, twice a year. And as part of that, I've got an incredible inner circle of people that, uh, that I get to, to have fellowship with. And uh, with everything in COVID, in, in taking IMC virtual this year, we decided to uh, come rent a house and, and have the, the nine of us get together and, and speak into each other's businesses and lives and uh, catch up with each other. It's been a, a phenomenal time. Um, so uh, I'm not in the studio as normal, don't have uh, the normal setup, but uh, we're, we're glad to have you guys with us. But I'm so excited uh, about this interview. As a matter of fact, you know, normally when I have an event like I'm doing today and you know, where I'm talking all day and, 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 and working with people, I, I normally go to a replay, but this gentleman was just too good to, to pass up. Our schedule's aligned um, and uh, I'm so excited. So I just want to jump right in and talk to this gentleman. He's a proven brand builder, builder and entrepreneur with deep experience in innovative media ventures and consumer products. He's the founder and chairman of the Books Company. And for those of you that are Shark Tank nerds like myself, we know the story of Books, and I can't wait to get into it. In 2012, along with co-founder uh, Juan Pablo, and I want to say Mantufar, uh, hopefully I say that right, uh, he, uh, he launched in uh, Marina Del Rey, California-based company, and is now an industry leader in the online floral space that delivers flowers and plants fresh from eco-friendly, sustainable farms around the world, doorsteps nationwide. Prior to launching uh, Books, this gentleman worked in corporate brand strategy for Disney and Shoe Dazzle and advised Fortune 100 clients at Bain & Company. So let's bring him on, John Tavis. How you doing, John? Great. Thanks so much for having me. And did I, did I say your partner's name properly? I you, you nailed it. Get out. Nailed get out. That, yeah. that Alabama accent, just rock that or what? Right. <laughs> I like it. Listen, I, there's so much I want to cover on this. And, you know, you gave me a few questions uh, in kind of pre-roll. In, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I don't know if I'll even touch those questions because I've got so many that are burning. I'm um, down to talk about whatever. Let's so I would it. love – I know it. Um, I've watched it. I, I, I know the follow-ups. Um, again, I'm not just a Shark Tank, you know, fan, but a, a true on just uh, geek. Uh, uh, I've had the uh, pleasure of working with a gentleman by the name of Paul Pedrazzi, um, who uh, had a uh, uh, lunchbox that they brought on. But he's he wrote uh, Talent, uh, was hired by CA to reinvigorate their whole online UI experience. Uh, but just whenever I get to meet people that have gone through that experience, I'm just fascinated. I love to tap into the mindset and everything else. So let's let's bring the listeners up to speed if you know if they haven't followed the story. But you got every entrepreneur's dream, which is a chance to pitch to you know some incredible people. But it didn't quite go the way you expected. Can can we talk about that for a moment? Sure. I, I don't mean to rip off scabs there, John. No, but let's, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think that Shark Tank is one of the best things that's ever happened to the, our company. It's one of the best things that's ever happened to me as an individual. Um, so I love Shark Tank. I talk about it all day. Um, 
So yeah, so we we filmed in the summer of 2013, and we're getting we're getting back there in the company's history, and then we aired in the spring of 2014, and I believe it was the highest rated season of, in terms of ratings for Shark Tank uh, since it started. I'm not saying it was because of us, but I'm I'm not saying it's not. Yeah, it was a great season though, for sure. Yeah, great it was a great season. season. Lots of amazing companies. The first season where they had startups on and all that kind of stuff, and um, and so I, I yeah I pitched that summer. Um, it's, it's a fascinating experience, you know, as, and I was a fan, I am a fan of the show as well, just as a viewer, but what you see is so very different than what the experience is. You know, I, I, I luckily it, it was sort of easy for me. I live about a mile and a half from the Culver city lot where, where Sony, um, Sony lot where they filmed the show. And so for me, I just drove over, <laughs> um, yeah. par- parked and hopped into the, into the, um, the star wagon to get my makeup and my hair done and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you walk in and it's the first time you see the sharks. You're not hanging out with them beforehand. You're not hanging out with them afterwards. It is, it is just like in the show, but then you're in there, you know, I was in there for an hour and 53 minutes or something like that. And six and a half of that makes it onto the TV set. We all watch at home. And so it was a, it was a, it was a heck of an experience because you're in there for a while. The lights are on you. You're cooking under these lights. um, And the, and the sharks are just, peppering you with questions i mean left and right left and right over top of each other at the same time and so it's highly stressful environment so what's interesting to me about that because you go into the pitch and and the sticking point really was around the the time the six days uh to to fulfill and then you know you you had stated you were launching online or uh, overnight delivery in about three weeks uh, that was going to be a different cause. So then Barbara gets a little bit miffed on the fact that you're changing your strategy, which I didn't follow that comment at all. Uh, but then I agree. Uh, I agree completely. Yeah, I, I was like, <laughs> dude, no, I, it's a higher cost because it's overnight. Like there's no change in strategy whatsoever. Um, so I, I, you know, I was like, all right, whatever. But uh, Kevin, who, who can be, you know, historically just brutal. Right. It gets into the, yeah, I don't even know where to send the flowers for your funeral because your funeral will happen. I mean, that was, (laughs) it's a great line. line. I mean, it's probably one of his top five ever he landed on the show. Good zinger. Uh, But, but you didn't get the deal. You didn't get the deal. So talk to me about walking out of that tank. And and this is really where I want to get into with this interview because a lot of my listeners are entrepreneurs, startup people, um, coaches, that kind of stuff. And what I'd love to bring out in the show is it's not the, the, the success is the few. It's the failure to breed the success that, that really you learn from. So you're walking out of the tank. Walk me through that experience. Sure. And, and you couldn't be more right. You know, I've failed a lot more in this journey than I've succeeded in terms of percentages of actions that worked or didn't work or, you know, fundraising or whatever it might be. It's not that you succeed all the time or you get it all right. It's that you refuse to stop, right? You keep going, you learn from it, you get better. And that is absolutely for any entrepreneur. If you don't have a super thick skin and just an obstinance about you where you will not give up no matter what, try something else, right? You can be great at a lot. Yeah, of I, I, I'm not overweight. This is just scar tissue from entrepreneurship. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. Yeah. I love that. But uh, yeah, so look, I, I got roundly rejected by all five sharks. It was, it was, you know, I, I think I walked out and I said brutal sort of under my breath as I walked out of the, because it was, but here was the thing. And, you know, this wasn't part of the show, but I had been rejected by well over 150 investors before that show. Now, none of them were five at a time and none of them were on national television under the hot lights, but I had already developed that thick skin. And, and they were from super smart investors, investors you've all heard of in Silicon Valley and like very famous people down to folks that, you know, mom and pop sort of 
uh, angel investors that were like, yeah, I don't know if I want to give you my $20,000, John, thanks very much. And um, so I had gotten used to this idea that they can pass and I can still be right, right? These, these yeah. are not them passing or them rejecting or whatever you want to call it does not mean that my thesis or my company is not going to succeed. Like those two are, that is not an incontrovertible truth. They could be right and they might be smart to pass. Many of people that passed in those early days have come to me and said, well, I guess we were wrong, but they yeah. never, they never bat a thousand. And once you get comfortable with this idea that super smart people can be wrong and then in investing often they are, um, you can come at with this position of, Hey, I can, I can keep this thing going. This does not mean the end of the road for me. Um, and so because we had gone through, we had raised a $1.7 million seed round right before I went to pitch. I had already been through the meat grinder of just pitch, reject, pitch, reject, pitch, reject. I took it. it, it it's, I won't lie. It didn't, it's not that it didn't hurt. It always hurts, sure. but it wasn't the end of the world because it was sort of like, okay, so five more people add them on top of the 103 that have already said no. Now we're at 108. We're moving on to Wednesday. Let's go get Wednesday. So I, I think in the in the journey, what was most fascinating to me, right? So I love the episode. I love that Kevin was brutal. Um, I thought it was cool. I actually was one of the uh, the people that ordered. You know, you, you obviously get that spike. Yeah, I'm I'm notorious for uh, getting emotionally invested in the company base. It's just in that six and a half minutes, I'm like, well, I'm gonna go get a bouquet. You know, and, and it. it was awesome. I we I actually um, I, again I, I mentioned I'm in a business mastermind. We were just talking downstairs, and I had to put it on pause so I'd come do the interview. They said, well, "Who are you interviewing?" And, and I told them, and they started raving about the company, right? Oh, nice. And they're like, "Oh yeah, you can go to FTD, and you know maybe the flowers are good for two to three days, but you know it came from Ecuador via nitrogen packing and all this other stuff, right? Or you can go to Books, and it's going to last you a good two to three weeks, right? Now I can't guarantee that. You can't guarantee that, but that's the that's the the reality of what you've done. But in this journey, um, what fascinated me more than anything was the follow-up interview with Robert Herjavec when they came back and, and had that episode of, you know, deals we wish we would have gotten in on or things that we passed on. And every one of them had regrets on passing a books. But my Herjavec said something really, really cool. And I, I want to dive into it. So he, he bumps into you. You guys run into each other somehow. And, and, but then you said, let me show you the flower business. And based on that, that's when Robert uh, finally came in and, and, and jumped in with you. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so it was actually around his wedding. So he was on Dancing with the Stars. That's right. That's and right. And he fell in love with his dancing partner, which is kind of an amazing story. Um, and so he calls me out of the blue. And, and I literally, I, the phone number pops up. I don't recognize it. I think it's my 3 o'clock call. It was like 2.58. Um, and he, he's like, John, Robert from Shark Tank. I need help with my wedding flowers. And so we helped him with his wedding flowers. We saved him a ton of money. And in the journey with, with me, he got to spend so much time. He got into the business, really got to learn the business. At the end of it, he's like, hey, I'd really love to invest. Can I still invest? And I was like, yeah, of course you can invest, Robert. Um, but the Shark Tank itself is such a rapid fire experience that it just didn't have the time to understand the nuances and complexities of the supply chain and how what we were doing was really different. But in that time with me over his wedding, he was able to get that learning and that got him really excited about the business. Yeah. Kim, as a matter of fact, his, his wife uh, was dancing partners with a, a good friend of mine and Joey Fatone when oh, they, nice. uh, when they did that. So I was a fan of Kim. So when I saw that go down, I thought that was pretty cool. But that's right. So he, he, he was a customer first and he was running into the normal side of the business of how expensive it can really be. Um, 
for, for no reason. And so what I want to get into next, um, and we've got to take a break right here. We're going to, we're going to go to commercials, but I want to seed the questions so that everybody knows what we're talking about when we come back. What I really want to get into next is how did you figure out what those nuances of the business? And essentially you've, you've revolutionized the, the, the online flower, you know, boutique bouquets. Um, but I really want to understand like, What's different about your flower business than any other flower business that's out there and what makes Spook so special? So we're going we're gonna to get that answer right after the break. You're listening to Rick Morris on the Work-Life Balance. Are you aware that 80% of project management executives do not know how their projects align with their company's business strategy? Are you aware that businesses identified capturing time and costs against projects as their biggest project management challenge? Are you aware that 44% of project managers use no software, even though PricewaterhouseCoopers found that the use of commercially available project management software increases performance and satisfaction? Now, imagine that you could have the ease of entry like a spreadsheet and a software tool set up and running within two to four weeks. Imagine within two weeks being able to see clearly where all of your resource conflicts are. Well, you don't have to imagine because PDWare has already created it. PDWare can give you real-time access to KPIs, easily updated views of what your teams are working on, and immediate feedback to some of project management's toughest questions. Like, when can we start this project? What happens if we delay this project? Can we do this in time? How does this new project impact our current portfolio? Find us at pdware.com and imagine not manually compiling endless reports again. Are you getting the most out of your project management software? In many cases, it is not the software that is failing, but the implementation, limitations, or processes surrounding the use of that software. R-Squared can analyze your current use and help improve your return on investment. R-Squared can also suggest the best software for your organization and goals and assist in the selection, implementation, and training. Allow R-Squared to ensure that you are getting the value of your investment. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com today. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back on the Work-Life Balance this Friday afternoon with John Tavis. And, and John, I, you know, I got to apologize up front because I'm just geeking out, man. I, I love this story the the perseverance, the overcoming, everything that you've kind of been through. Um, when when I get opportunities to speak to somebody that's been through as much as you have, I I, I kind of nerd out. So uh, you know, advanced apologies as I continue <laughs> to geek out uh, in, in business here. So we we gave a seed question right before we went to break, though. But what makes Boog so different? Like what what is the pitch, and what did you figure out that made you kind of feel that you were right? Yeah, it's a great question. So at the beginning. You know, this company started as a conversation between my co-founder and I, and he is a good buddy of mine from, from Notre Dame, go Irish. And uh, he, uh, he had been running a floral farm and he had reached out to me because he wanted to start doing more direct sales from the farm, but he wasn't a marketer. He was a biochemist. And in those conversations, all these sort of 
call it negative externalities or inefficiencies or just poor negative experiences for farmers and consumers kept popping up. And those problems just, they started like eating at me and eating at him in these conversations. And there were things like, hey, his farm invested heavily in sustainability and then invested very heavily in their people. They treated them right. They paid them well, et cetera, et cetera. But no one on the other end even knew that because they don't know which flowers come from which farm. And the farmer always gets paid last. They're at the beginning of the value chain and they're waiting for all these players to pay each other so they could get paid. They had very little negotiating power. Um, Flowers, by definition, in the traditional supply chain, spend a lot of time moving around and not in people's vases. So the, the, the wasted time, the wasted life of the flowers in logistics, instead of being used in the home for beauty and for, for comfort. And so, and then, you know, I went on and started shopping these sites as I started talking about this. And I saw this 1999 ad and all of a sudden I was being charged $75 at checkout. And I was like, yep. how, how did that, how did we get to this place? This doesn't make any sense. And then I ordered pink and I got yellow. And I, how, how does that happen? And right. it turns out that, that all of these things are related. And, and they all boil down to the idea that, that flowers are a complex thing to sell because they're a dainty, alive, organic thing. And they're grown far away. They're grown primarily in Ecuador and Colombia. And so this, this whole industry, the whole supply chain grew up around that. You have the farmers in South America. You have exporters. You have importers in Miami, you have customs, you have wholesalers, you have florists, and you have online retailers that are all trying to work with this very, uh, very dainty and very alive product they have to treat in a very special way. It's not surprising that in all those steps, you lose things. It creates waste. Um, It creates older flowers. Um, You you can't control exactly which flowers are when and where, so they're not exactly the same ones that you ordered. And so our whole idea was if we can put all those steps under one roof, the Book's roof, work directly with the farmer and only pick the best farmers. That means quality of stems, variety, design, and sustainability. Um, And have technology really loop all that together. Then we can give them the best of all worlds, the best quality stuff at the best price. And that's really what we've been trying to do ever since. And of course, the farmers would prefer to work directly with you than through all the other various outlets, right? It's just because, again, you get paid, paid better. In the beginning, it was tough because it was a different way for them to work, right? They're used to sending things into wholesale, which is big bins, doing something we call plop and chop, which is like you're hacking the flowers and put them in a big bin. We were asking them to design bouquets based on the interface, ship them in individual small packages directly to a consumer ready for consumption. And if you ask a farmer what is um, a beautiful rose, they will say like a, a natural rose, meaning thorns and like all the natural pieces. That's not what consumers are looking for. So we were asking them to change the way they did things. There was a lot of resistance, but then we got a couple farms, like my co-founder's farm and the friend's farm. And as they saw the experience and it worked for them, they started talking to other farmers and the other farmers started saying, Hey, can I get in on that? And all of a sudden we started to grow naturally. We didn't have to sell it anymore. People were coming to us saying, can we work with you too? Um, And then that spread globally. And our network now is 140 farms on three continents in like 18 different countries. Wow. Now, talk to me really quickly, because you and I have a link there. So I, I worked at, at Disney when I was 11. I was part of the, the Mickey Mouse Club, uh, really, for, for all seven of those seasons. So, and I, wow. I grew up in Orlando. Yeah. So That's how what you was, know Joey Fatone. It, well, that's, that's exactly right. And not nice. only that, but like my high school was, you know, Joey Fatone, Wayne Brady, uh, Johnny Damon, who, you know, is a famous baseball player. We, Amazing. We, it, we all just grew up together from like second grade on, right? Whereas now more people are transient in Orlando. We were there 
and, and kind of grew through that whole piece. But what did you, what did you do with Disney? So I joined Disney after my MBA out at UCLA. Uh, my previous career to, uh, to, to MBA was in strategy and marketing. So a couple years at Bain and Company and then uh, doing some advertising. Gerber Baby was my client. I was like a 25-year-old trying to teach moms how to, how to do <laughs> breastfeeding. And I knew nothing about anything. Um, but I digress. So um, uh, at, at Disney, I did sort of a combination of those two roles. I worked in a group called Corporate Brand Management, which was a subdivision of corporate brand of corporate strategy. And so that was a group that we sat right directly below Bob Iger physically and um, an org structure and Kevin Mayer who ran strategy up until he recently left to become the CEO of TikTok, was ultimately our boss and our job internally, the brand management team was a couple different sub teams. My team focused specifically on trends in technology, how that was changing consumers behaviors and therefore what should we do with our brands, ABC, ESPN, Marvel, and the Walt Disney, uh, at the time, uh, Lucasfilm and the Star Wars acquisition was just, just being worked on. So it wasn't that at the time. And so it was a super cool job because all we did was talk about, hey, when's over the top going to happen? What's this new thing called an iPad and how are kids going to use it? We were, we were like sort of at the bleeding edge of entertainment technology and how it was going to impact all. Of, so we got to work with Imagineering and see like what was going to happen in the parks early um, with Apple because of Steve Jobs was on the board and we had a special relationship with them. And uh, so our job was essentially measure these things. How many people are using them? How often? How are they using them? And then work with the different business units to figure out, okay, in, in, in theaters, in film, how is this going to change your business? In TV, in radio, in whatever the different businesses were. Um, so we were essentially internal consultants around technology and how it impacted our brands. It was a super cool gig. That's very cool. And so was Books, what, Books wasn't your first entrepreneurial journey, though. Tell me, tell me about the ones that came before that. So um, Books is the, the one that worked. There were lots of others sure. that were tried, but um, none of them were really, um, what I'd say, careers. They were more side hustles and projects, right? So yeah. um, I had, uh, and actually you'll find this now, I, don't know if you, I think it's called Change Up. Um, I had a concept for Roundup, which was uh, this idea of giving to charity with the pennies that are left over. It's like the same thesis Acorns has for investing. You know, sure. if you have 80 cents left over, It'll go to charity. Um, I had a business plan for it. I had a team, et cetera, et cetera. I couldn't raise any money for it. For whatever reason, someone else was successful. I wasn't. It became a, another stack in the things that didn't work. Um, I think my favorite story that I love to tell about something that I created that, I didn't, that didn't succeed is, is when I was 12 or 13, I invented the hybrid electric car. I, I, <laughs> I remember we learned about friction, and I was like, wait a second. The brakes get hot. That creates energy. I can push that into a battery, which can then make the car go forward. And I drew a diagram for it and stuff. No one pays me any royalties. Um, no, this is, of course not. This is the thing. Ideas are worth nothing. Ideas are worth literally nothing. I've had so many billion-dollar ideas, and I've done nothing with any of them, so they're worth nothing to me or to the world. Execution is everything. And the hardest part of execution, and, and this is for the entrepreneurs out there that haven't really done it yet, it's just getting started. Like yeah. the key thing is you just got to try them and be willing to fail. I, you know, I had movie concepts, TV concepts. While I was at Disney, I was writing scripts with people and like trying to get them pitched and they didn't go anywhere, but you don't, you, you literally nothing ventured, <laughs> nothing gained. Right. Yeah. So I, I laugh because you, I, I know what it takes to get a TV show on air. I know what it takes to go through concept and all of that other stuff. We had, I had a reality show that was very, very close to getting picked up and fell apart at the last minute. We, in fact, at Mickey Mouse Club, I, I own the group called The Party. 
and we were financing a comeback and we were going to have a reality show around that. It got very, very close and then, then fell apart. But then you see like some of these other shows that just pop out and you're like, dude, how did they get funded? <laughs> like, this is the dumbest show I've ever seen in my entire life. There's no script, no plot, no character development, no nothing, right? Reality or otherwise, you're like, well, and not only that, but then how do you stop watching it? Because you can't. It's so, uh, I don't yeah. know. So I'm, I'm sure you felt a lot of that. Well, and even within Books, a similar thing. Like there's things that I've, as the, as the founder and the CEO at the time, was trying to get done in my org. And sometimes I didn't get them done. Why? I didn't sell it well enough. It wasn't the right idea at the time. We didn't have the capability to execute on it. Uh, talking about shows, we were attached. I was a, a executive producer on a show around floral design for like four years. And we pitched everyone. We got rejected by everyone. And then in the last year, two got picked up. Two different wow. shows that we have nothing to do with get picked up. Now, you're actually to see one of them will come out this fall and we are going to be a small part of it. But, you know, th this is what life is. Don't, yeah. Everything works. Don't, everything goes our way. But it's the number of times you can get back up and keep swinging. And can you learn from the rejection? And as we talked about at the beginning, you know, with, with the investing, you, it's just about taking reps, right? And you get better at life. You get better at business. You get better at entrepreneurship with each rep that you take. At some point, if you only fail and you never see any success, one has to question, is this the path for you? But sure. outside of that, which is really a self-care thing, like, do I want to subject myself to any more of this pain? Is this really for me? And or practicality, I need to pay the bills. Um, it's really about that grit and determination, that, that, that refusal to believe, you know, refusal to accept that you're wrong, that, you, that your thesis is not going to play out. Now, what's interesting, though, so you said it was 2014 when you aired on, on Shark Tank. So the, the social environmental uh, conscious businesses at the time, that they were just kind of getting off the ground, right? It's really more of an explosion 2016, 2017, where right, millennials really just started to care about, well, where's the money going, right? What, what are you doing with it? So you have the great bomb buzz and, you know, those types of stories. But you're really cutting edge on... The, the social and economic kind of socially conscious side of the business as well. Yeah, we were pretty early, almost a little bit too early. We, we kind of we missed the, the right wave for when to launch. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, we saw in the millennial and the post-millennial generations, you know, I think the long-term sort of uh, long-term consumer will demand to know where, where things come from, right? It's, it's, it's yeah. happening. It's not fully happened yet. But there was a time in which companies could just be like, I'm going to put whatever I put on the shelf and you will take it. And that will be just what it is. because so they had so much power, but with the internet and with e-commerce and the sort of lower and lower barriers to entry um, competition springs up and that competition will care about what consumers care about, which is going to force everyone. If you think about this 15, 20 years ago, we didn't talk about where our food came from. No. You mean? It came from the grocery yeah. store. I went down right. to the giant Eagle out in Pittsburgh and that's where I got my food, right? The, the Eagle is what we called it. And um, like, that's where I got my food. We didn't ask about where the lettuce, like what farm the lettuce came from, how they farmed, but there's a level of information out there, which then therefore creates transparency that now requires it. And so we were pretty early on in floral. We're very proud of that. You're seeing more and more brands in floral start to talk about it, which is exactly what our goal was. Um, but there has been an explosion across fashion, um, uh, food certainly, and, and just sort of transparency of where things come from, how it's manufactured, what that impact is on the environment and what the impact is on the consumer where that's becoming now the expectation instead of the exception. Yeah. He's talking about uh, being early. So I was a, a, an entrepreneurial consultant for Xerox and I was there for the internet boom, right? This is right when the internet's coming on and all this stuff. 
and, and we had dreamed up this product called Internet Bill and uh, Payment and Presentment, uh, IBPP. And that was going into banks and stuff and going, why are you sending and printing statements? I can send that email. I remember sitting with CIOs going, well, email's not secure. And I was like, dude, I can go to your mailbox and just open the door and get your <laughs> bank statement. Like, I, I don't understand it. But I, I've been on that, you know, and obviously now every single company does it, right? Everybody's got online statements, but we were pitching that like in 97, 98, you know, that kind of thing. That'd be early, early. So I've been a part of that. And we're going to take another break right here. When we get back, I want to talk about, uh, you know, the, the elephant in the room, which is COVID and how that's impacting business. And honestly, and you also uh, made a transition from being the CEO to chairman. So I want to get into that when we, when we come back from break, you're listening to Rick Morris on the work-life balance. We'll be right back. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? R-Squared Consulting provides end-to-end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R-Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. At the Work-Life Balance, we like to ask simple questions to our executives and portfolio managers. Are you picking your projects based on what the organization can spend, or is it based on what your resources can realistically achieve? This question, if not answered properly, can cause great strain on your staff, limiting the return on investment. When creating project selection criteria, does your organization attempt to understand the amount of resources needed to complete the work? Is this done in spreadsheets or at a high level? What if we told you there was a simple and easy solution that was built with resource planning in mind? We call it Resource First from PDWare. Resource First was built with resource planning as its foundation. We have years of experience that proves before a company fine-tunes its project and portfolio management processes. Without a process for resource planning, the best processes and algorithms can fall flat. Resources should be first when deciding the strategy of taking an organization forward. Find out more at pdware.com. Put your people first with Resource First from PDWare. Join us at pdware.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now back to the Work-Life Balance. And we're back to the Work-Life Balance on this Friday afternoon. We're, we're visiting, and you know what? It, your bio says co-founder and CEO, but I think that that's out of date now. You're, you're not CEO of Books anymore. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Um, as of May 15th, I stepped out of the CEO seat and uh, into the chairman seat. Right. Perfect timing with COVID and everything else going on. I'm sure there was no challenges <laughs> yeah. around that. But what, what really brought that on? Was it, was it time just to move on new leadership or where are you at? Yeah, look, um, it was probably about two years ago when I looked at what the company needed long term and what I want to do and I'm great at, right? And sort of my strengths are largely around storytelling, uh, new business creation, ideation, et cetera. 
I'm not a traditional block and tackle executional guy, right? All my jobs prior to books were not operational. They were strategic. It was strategy at the Walt Disney Company, strategy at Bain & Company, a long-term 10-year-plus planning and thinking, almost no execution. What we produced were PowerPoint decks and ideas. Yeah. And so, you know, both between my personal sort of interests and what I really thought the company needed, we're getting to a scale and a size where, where you know, we, we knew we could make this thing really big. But like, what skill sets you need to do that? And so I actually went on sort of an exploration of what makes a great CEO for a business like this. And then I sort of, you know, did the Venn diagram with me. And there was some overlap. I was doing, I think, a fine job. Um, but was it the best thing for the company? And then secondarily, was it the best thing for me? And I got to an answer. I was like, not really. Um, I think there's somebody out there who will be better for this company in the CEO seat. And I think I will be better value add to this company by being in a different kind of role. And so I went to the board and sort of pitched them on the idea. And it was, it was a, you know, there's a lot of concern whenever a, a seven year CEO is coming and saying, like, hey, I think maybe it's time for a change. But we got everybody on the same page and, and, and went out and did a search. And we were so lucky. We hired a, an amazing operator, leader, um, person in Alejandro Bethlen, who's now our CEO. Like I said, took over May 15th. And it's been really fantastic. And, and you, you mentioned you know, doing it in the middle of a pandemic. We've been 100% remote. So we've gone through a complete leadership change all via Zoom. And this is when you know you have an amazing company, an amazing culture, is we did it with, like, without a hiccup. I mean, it was That's the awesome. smoothest transition you could possibly imagine. And Alejandro and I are great friends now and really great uh, you know, operating partners. And the company has really rallied behind him. And, and it's been a really great couple months since he took over. Yeah, but you, you basically avoided the founder's curse, right? That founder's curse is I founded this company. I'm going to ride this sucker until it goes. And, and not recognizing that change that's necessary, not recognizing that, hey, it's time. You know, I got us here. That's awesome, right? But, well, and, but how, and, do we, how do we grow and sustain? That's right. And, and to be super clear, I did consider, and it is a path to say, I'm going to learn to become that, right? If I believe Absolutely. I have the capability... Then the question becomes, do you want that? And in my case, the answer was not necessarily. Um, and then how long is it going to take and how good are you going to be on the other side? And yeah. what, what I had seen over my sort of uh, pro progression as a CEO was I got better and better at it. But how long would it take me to get to be as good of an operator as Alejandro, who's been doing it for, he did it for Amazon for eight years, prior to that at Procter & Gamble for like eight years. Like, I'm not going to catch up. And right. I can, but then I can spend my time doing where I can add a lot of value, big strategic partnerships, long-term thinking, international expansion, new concept development, these things that I get up in the morning, I can't wait to work on and therefore are going to be one more fun for me, but it's going to have better outcomes for the company as well. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's beautiful. Often, I, sorry, I think it's a, one of the greatest signs of leadership. And, and again, you, you keep going up notches in my book to say, I, I can do this, which right, it's not a hit on you by any means, but to say that person's going to be better. Like if it, John Maxwell says, says it, I'm sure he stole it from somebody else as well. But if, if you're sitting in the room and you're the smartest person in the room, then you need to change rooms. You need to surround yourself with people who are better than you. And then, you know, obviously you learn and grow through that. So I, I commend you for that decision. That's, uh, that says ego uh, isn't in the way of uh, prosperity. And that's, well, that's and rare these days. The hardest battle on this whole thing was with myself. And sure. it, it became very, because startups, especially as they scale, they become very intertwined with who you are as a human being. And it's really hard to rip that apart and think of it as a job. But once I was able to mentally flip this to, 
this is a job. And, and if I were to interview everyone in the world for this job, would I give myself the job? And if the answer isn't a thousand percent yes, well then you got to start looking for somebody that you would absolutely give that job to. Um, and so that was the hardest part was getting myself mentally sort of, it, it was almost, I'm, I'm still in the company. I'm the chairman. I'll be chairman until I die or commit a felony, you know, whichever one comes sure. first. But like, <laughs> I'm still, I'm still there, but it is an emotional moment where you think about changing that role because it becomes such a part of you. Once I was able to get through that part, all the rest of it was really easy for me. You know, we were talking on the break about professional speaking in, in that industry and that kind of stuff. But that to me is a keynote I haven't heard on if I interviewed a ton of people, would I get the job? I, I, so if that's not a concept that you haven't been running with, that's, that's the concept I think that would land in, in, in a big way. Um, coming back to books for a second, though, because we looked at the website, you know, in this mastermind because they knew I was about to interview you. But did I see as a, a subscription service? Like, how do you how do you build like everybody's getting in a subscription, right? That's that's where it's at. It changed the music industry forever, for sure. H how did you broach flowers and subscription? Like, that's just not something I put together. Yeah, we've, we've actually had subscriptions since the beginning of the company, but it was always kind of a secondary on the side little thing. And therefore, it wasn't the, the focus of the business. And the way that people generally used it up until kind of more recently is they used it as a really nice gift. Like instead of giving mom flowers on Mother's Day once, you give them to her once a month for a whole year. And that, yeah. was, a nice, that was a nice way to, to have the business. And it was a good business. But my thesis on subscription the, the whole time was this could be for anyone that buys flowers because most people are going to buy flowers more than once a year. So the sure. question is, how do you give them a tool that enables them to do so in a way that's better for them and keeps them with us as, as, as a subscriber? And so our, our current subscription model is anyone that comes to our site today will get 30% off and free delivery, which in dollars is roughly 50% off if you sign up for our subscription service. But the service is super flexible. So you, get, you can sign up for whatever frequency you want, once a week, once every other week, once a month, once every other month. Um, but then you can skip so if you don't need flowers this month, you just go in and hit the skip button and then they're not going to ship. Um, and you can change the address or the, or the recipient. You can say, hey, this month I'm going to have them show up at my house, give them to my wife. Um, next month, same thing. But then the next month, it's my sister's birthday. I'm going to change my yeah. sister's birthday. So now you're getting the subscription price, which again is roughly 50% off. And so it makes it palatable for the customer to say, oh, I, I, I was going to send flowers three, four times a year anyway. I'll skip the other months, but now I get this price. And it allows us to have a consistent, persistent relationship with the customer. They get an understanding of our farming and how it matters. And so it really is the best of all worlds for both the company and for the customer. And so that's really been our, our pitch around subscriptions. Well, so obviously you're lowering the cost of acquisition of the customer, number one, right? So if we stay with you, that kind of stuff. But, but also um, being able to forecast a little bit, right? In a, in a seasonal business, um, I, I can imagine you have some pretty high forecasts, say around February 14th, for whatever reason, um, maybe, you know, around Mother's Day, like, like you said, but uh, learning how to forecast appropriately and in, in drive revenue in the non-seasonal months, I think is probably a more critical tact, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and it, it enables us because of the relationship with the customer to, to not be sort of forgotten in between those big, you know, like, you think about Mother's Day and then next Valentine's Day, you're talking about more than half a year in between. So how do you create loyalty on just two days a year? It's really hard. Whereas sure. if you're there for the birthdays, if you're there for the anniversaries, if you're there when someone's sick and maybe someone wasn't going to send flowers, but you have the subscription price and they kind of go like, oh, it's only 36 bucks. 
sure, I'm going to use my monthly subscription for that event. You're keeping that persistent relationship with the customer. And that then leads to, like you, just like you said, downstream benefits for analytics, for financial forecasting, for inventory planning, for shipping rates, and understanding like what our sort of base business is and how that grows. And so it has, you know, subscription is not just a revenue generating idea. It has all these sort of downstream positive impacts to the way e-commerce companies work. And so- yeah, Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was, I was just going to say, I encourage folks that run any business, but especially consumer facing businesses to think through, hey, in, in where in this, in this equation can a subscription not just be good for us internally, but help the customer? And the overlap of those two is where you'll find wins. Sure. Well, even I was thinking where I was going, there was like even like office buildings, you know, just getting fresh flowers, you know, once a month to every other week just to, to have in the lobby and that kind of stuff, you know, right. just some aesthetic touches. Um, yeah, I can see where a, that comes through. A ton of interest in it during COVID. And we mentioned we're going to talk about COVID because people are stuck at home and they're not outdoors as much and they're not in nature as much. They're not in their offices, which have plants and flowers. And so we're seeing people subscribe so they can bring a little bit of that nature, a little bit of that beauty inside. Well, and staying at this Airbnb here, everything's plastic. That was one of the things somebody brought up. So, you know, freshen up your Air, Airbnb with a subscription, right? There you it, go. Add that, that extra touch to, of uh, nice fresh flowers for your guests when they walk in. I can, I can see that. I'll only take a small percentage of that royalty, so that's good. <laughs> that's great. Um, I appreciate it. But I, I could, yeah, no, I can see the Airbnb idea being huge. But still, I think that's the point is, is to constantly innovate, constantly think, constantly push a model. And again, some are going to work, some aren't, but those that do should, should pay off way more than those that don't. As soon as you have found what quote unquote works and you're comfortable, you're dead, right? Innovate, uh, or, yeah. innovate or die literally the right. whole time, all the time. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons I wanted to start an early stage company. One of the reasons I, I left the Walt Disney Company to enter the startup world was I just wanted to build new stuff all the time. I wanted to constantly yeah. come up with something new, test it, see what happens because what if, like, what if we tried this or what if we tried that is the most fun way to me to go about life, not just business, but just like how you're spending your time because we only get one shot. And so if we're not constantly learning and trying new things, like what's the point? And so right. the startup world is, is perfect for that mindset. Absolutely. That creative side of it is, is exciting. Uh, so we're going to take our final break right here. We'll be right back with John Tavis. You're listening to Rick Morris on the Work-Life Balance. Are you aware that 80% of project management executives do not know how their projects align with their company's business strategy? Are you aware that businesses identified capturing time and costs against projects as their biggest project management challenge? Are you aware that 44% of project managers use no software, even though PricewaterhouseCoopers found that the use of commercially available project management software increases performance and satisfaction? Now, imagine that you could have the ease of entry like a spreadsheet and a software tool set up and running within two to four weeks. Imagine within two weeks being able to see clearly where all of your resource conflicts are. Well, you don't have to imagine because PDWare has already created it. PDWare can give you real-time access to KPIs, easily updated views of what your teams are working on, and immediate feedback to some of project management's toughest questions, like, when can we start this project? What happens if we delay this project? Can we do this in time? How does this new project impact our current portfolio? Find us at pdware.com and imagine not manually compiling endless reports again. Are you frustrated with the overall productivity of your project management processes? Do you lack consistency in project delivery? 
R Squared Consulting provides end-to-end -end services to assist companies of all sizes in realizing and improving the value of project management. Whether you want to build a project management office, train project managers, or learn how to bring the oversight and governance to your project processes, R Squared has tailored best practices to help you in all areas of project management. Visit rsquaredconsulting.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned in to the Work-Life Balance. To reach Rick Morris or his guest today, we'd love to have you call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, Rick can be reached at rmorris at rsquaredconsulting.com. Now, back to the Work-Life Balance. We're back on the Work-Life Balance. I can't believe we're in the final segment already, man. This this has flown by. We're, we're going to have to bring you back and, and, and do another show. But uh, Anytime. Anytime. Yeah, I'm digging you. Again, you've got a fan for life right here. But uh, we were talk we talked and teased uh, COVID a couple of times. But really, what is what impact has that had on you, on you guys what have you had to innovate in order to deal with it? Yeah. So, you know, COVID for us, we, we, we went remote work a little bit earlier than most. Um, we had an employee who thought they may have been exposed. And so we sort of shut everything down about two weeks before California shut down. And now we haven't been back since and that was like March 8th or something, whatever it was. Um, you know, when we thought about it, we thought about a, a couple of things, you know, first was employee safety. Um, second was, financial planning in the case of a, of a downturn um, and, and, and executional plans that go with that. What we actually found though, was that because people aren't traveling as much, they're not going to birthdays and graduation parties, et cetera, is that people are actually sending flowers more. Um, oh, wow. and, and this is industry wide and, and e-commerce generally has seen a rise as people have gone out less, um, which we didn't expect. Um, and so for us, a lot of what we've been focused on, because we're just very lucky, we have a, a virtual business that is pretty easily run remotely, not perfectly easily, but like we have 140 farms and they're in remote locations where there aren't a lot of cases of COVID. Uh, it's easy to social distance on a farm because they're big and there's open space. A lot of people already wore masks because there's a lot of dust and debris. Sure. So operationally, we were kind of set up for this almost perfectly. Um, and luckily we had very few interruptions in our net in our network and it, because our network's so robust, if there was an interruption here, our systems just said, okay, then we'll do it over here. And so all yeah. of our distribution and inventory management was pretty seamless. Um, and so then it became about how do we give back? Like, what do we do differently? Because so many people are suffering and, and our business just isn't, we, we felt great to be able to employ our people to keep them fully employed, et cetera, et cetera. But like, what do we do here in this, in this moment? And a big focus for us then was uh, looking at our frontline workers, our, our healthcare workers, our nurses, our doctors, our, our, our EMTs, our, our, our police, and, and asking people to nominate their favorite people, people they're seeing, they're doing an amazing job for free bouquets. And we called it a thousand thank yous and we gave away a thousand bouquets to nurses and doctors in the midst of really the peak in that sure. time frame. Um, and so we really tried to think about how can we use this platform, this product to help everyone get through it. Because we are a product that is by nature designed to help people feel happy, relieve stress, um, and show, show love between individuals. 
And so that's really been our focus. You know, there have been things that have had to change. We're all working remotely 100%. I think maybe once in a while, one or two people go into the office with this beautiful office in Marina Del Rey that is completely empty every day. Uh, we've had to delay some things, though. We, uh, we announced in, in January a $30 million fundraise with plans to expand into retail and into international, specifically Japan. Um, and as of March, we essentially put those both on hold kind of indefinitely. Um, sure. We're starting to look back into both of those now as we're at least hoping to see some light at the end of the tunnel by the end of the year, early next year. Um, but that's really been the biggest shift is we expected to go into those areas hard as growth areas. And instead, it's more of the planning and the sort of uh, practicing getting ready for it instead of the execution. Yeah, she looked at some of these larger companies as well. Their profitability went through the roof. So, of course, some of that is, again, some of the behaviors not going out online, you know, e-commerce, that kind of stuff. But maybe there were some assumptions in our old model that we just made in terms of this is the cost that we just have to eat. This is the cost of doing business, whatever, that maybe COVID is really shaken up. And as you look at some of your operational costs, the way you did business, the number of meetings you had, you know, those types of things, are you seeing, you know, a challenge to that kind of status quo and something you think you'll take forward? Yeah. You know, I think there's, I think that's happening in kind of every business right now. And I was talking to a fellow entrepreneurs in fashion the other day, and she was talking about how in fashion, there are these tried and true in quotes, um, practices that you have to do again in quotes. And it's about when you bring out your line, how you pitch it, when you pitch it. And she's like, in this world, none of this even makes any sense. Like why, like, why are we doing it? I think there's some fundamental questions that are happening for people in the business world now around, I, I've always had to have in quotes, this resource or this headcount or this process. And do I really need to do it? And I think it's a really great opportunity as business leaders to take a step back and say, hey, this is the way we've done it for 25 years is this the way we have to do it going forward? We, we, right. We've always thought that 100% remote work would never work. And here we are six months later where everyone's kind of killing it. So does that yeah. mean we go 100% remote forever? I don't know, probably not. But does that mean that people can do it successfully? Absolutely. And maybe now people can take a, a month and work in Europe and work remotely from there. Maybe people want to have always wanted to live in a certain city that they couldn't do it before. And this, I think there's flexibility that comes out of times like this because the old thinking is challenged on a day-to-day -day basis. And so my hope is that we as leaders really take a step back and reflect on it. You know, I think with Alejandro joining as CEO, there was a natural inflection point of change that was going to happen anyway, right? We're sure. in the midst of thinking about how can we change our organizational structure? What processes can change? Um, but those are then changing even more because of COVID. And I'm sure we'll have lasting impact on the way we do business long-term. Exactly what all those are yet, I don't think we know because we're still in sure. the midst of, of the pandemic. Um, but I, I really do think that long-term, we're going to see a lot of consumer behaviors change because of COVID. I think subscriptions will stick around. I think e-commerce will stick around, but it won't be the same. It won't be 100% of the change you've already seen. It'll be some proportion thereof, depending on your business. If sure. your business is e-commerce, if your business is automotive or whatever, if, if the change is dramatic or if the change is small, some proportion of that will stick. And the question is just for an individual sector, how much? So how do people get in touch with you? So I'm uh, LinkedIn's probably the best. Um, uh, you just search for John Tavis, T-A-B-I-S. I'm also at John G. Tavis on uh, Twitter and uh, Instagram, although I'm not super uh, uh, active on either one, to be honest. I probably spend most of my time on LinkedIn. Um, you can also find me at johntavis.com for speaking, for appearances, for just you want to chit chat and talk about something that I said. 
Um, and then for the company, we're at books.com, like bouquet, but shortened, B-O-U-Q-S.com. Um, and you can find us at The Books Co. on any of the major you know, social media platforms. So finally, the question we ask every one of our guests, what's some of the best advice you've ever received? So there's a couple of things that my dad has told me in my life. And, and my dad is definitely the place where I've always gotten the most impactful advice. But when I was about eight or nine, um, he took uh, a, and he would probably still do this today, by the way, even though there's lots of technology. He took a, uh, a newspaper article and he put white paper around all the words he didn't want me to see. And he photocopied just the words he wanted me to see. And I still have it um, on my desk. And all it says is be better today than you were yesterday. Yeah. And that, and that quote has driven me sort of forever because I'm a person that's impatient for change. Like when I was 10, I wanted to be a, a multimillionaire. When I was 20, I wanted to run a company. Like all, you know, a lot, and a lot of people are, are that way, especially in America where there's a lot of drive. Um, but what keeps me grounded is this idea of don't worry about running a marathon. Let's just get the first mile in, right? Let's just go do the first mile. And then let's do the second. And, and incremental change is so much easier to stick with and so much easier to understand and to, to be disciplined around. Uh, because, you know, if you're trying to go from a 10-minute mile to a 9-minute mile, you know if you went from 10 to 9.55. And yeah. it's measurable results that have, give you immediate gratitude. And so I've tried to keep my mind, although it likes to dream in big ways and sort of the outcomes, on this more as an individual, as a business, as a company, as a team, as a family. How do we incrementally get better? And that's just easier to achieve. And then it allows you to stack um, success, right? If something becomes a habit. Now you're running your nine minute mile every week, three times a week or whatever. Great. Now you can move on to goal number two and get incrementally better in that area. You've now created a habit. And so be better today than yesterday is the one that, that I try to live by. That's fantastic. Well, John, listen, I, I, I've been doing this show almost five years now. I've got 300 plus episodes. You're easily in the, in the top 10 interviews that I did. So I appreciate you oh, coming on. You. And uh, we hopefully, hopefully we're starting to build a bond here because I'd love to have you back on the show and, and love to catch up with you and see what's going on and, and bring you back. Obviously, there's going to be a book coming at some point. So we'll be here for the release of that. Um, you know, <laughs> your own podcast. We'll, we'll, we'll be here for that. <laughs> Whatever you need, man. We're, we're an arm for you, buddy. So appreciate it. Thanks to you and your whole team. And, and thanks so much for squeezing in amongst your travels. Hope you really enjoy the conference and, and say hi to your, your fellow masterminds over there. Will do. Will do. So to everybody else, this concludes another episode of Work-Life Balance. Again, fantastic uh, episode. Always hit me up at Rick A. Morris. You can find me at Rick at rickamorris.com. And uh, we've got somebody else that's going to be here next week. We're actually booked out, I think, all the way through the end of the year now. So we've got phenomenal entrepreneurs and stories that are coming up uh, you know, as future episodes for us. And we hope uh, that you live your own work-life balance and you have a fantastic Friday. We'll talk to you same time, same place next week. You've been listening to Rick Morris on the Work-Life Balance. Thank you for joining us this week. The Work-Life Balance with Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now that the weekend is here, it's time to rethink your priorities and enjoy it. We'll see you on our next show. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program.